Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We honor you. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, we ask that your word would speak loudly to our souls today. Challenge us, encourage us. May our eyes gaze on Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, cause us to leave this room today with a fresh fire in our souls to serve you well. We give you all of our hearts. We say we love you with all of our minds, our strength. It's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Let every saint say amen. Amen. Now we're starting a new series today on the book of Colossians. Um, we're going to tackle the entire epistle. It's going to take us 104 weeks to do. I'm just kidding. It's four chapters. It'll be okay. Um, so I, I don't want to spend too much time today with long introductory thoughts because I want to have time to build some context. It's, you know, it takes a little longer when we're approaching a new text. But I do want to open with a thought from G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton, as far as I'm concerned, was the, the best mind of the 20th century. Many would say so. You remember C.S. Lewis writes in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, that as a young atheist, he said that he began to read G.K. Chesterton, and G.K. Chesterton bombarded his thought life with Christianity. And, and C.S. Lewis said, a young atheist can't be too careful with what he reads, um, because sooner or later he's going to get got. Um, Anyway, G.K. Chesterton in his first book called Heretics, he wrote in his 20s, he opened, I believe it was chapter 4, with this thought. He said, There is no such thing on earth as an uninteresting subject. The only thing that can exist is an uninterested person. There is no such thing on earth as an uninteresting subject. The only thing that can exist is an uninterested person. My mom used to say, Only dumb people get bored, son. That's what she would say. I want to make two points here as an introduction to this series. One, I think we've become largely in our society uninterested in the Bible. It's not uninteresting. It's not as if in our generation all of a sudden the Bible became boring. It was very interesting to our great-grandparents. We have become uninterested. Hebrews calls the Bible living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It says that the Bible is the bread of God. It's, it's lively, vibrant. My opening word to you as we turn to the book of Colossians is, one, the Bible is not boring. We are uninterested. And I want to ask you to revive your interest in the word of God. To lean in, pick up a pen and paper, apply your mind. I say this to you all the time. God gave you cognitive faculties that work. Okay? Use them. Secondly, I think that if you asked me to cook down the entire theme of the book of Colossians, I would say that from my perspective, in Colossians, Paul is addressing a church... That because they have lost interest in Christ, the head, they have become interested in false teaching, visions, dreams that lead people away. In other words, when, when you are totally, in, in the words of Revelations, when you have not forgotten your first love, 
and your eyes are gazing on Christ and Christ alone. I become much less interested in someone's dreams or visions that intend to lead me astray because I am captivated with one thing. Now you are either captivated with Christ or you will be led astray with false doctrine and false teaching. I don't think Paul's in, Paul's condemnation or, or judgment of the church of Colossia, Colossians, uh, Colossae is even that they are filled with heretics. I think there may be some heretics and false teachers in their midst. I think the primary emphasis is the church at Colossae is immature because they've become uninterested in Jesus and their ears have gone after false teaching. Now, I'll show you just a few places in, in the book of Colossians that kind of build my argument here. When you approach an epistle, it's important to try to formulate an occasion, right? Like, why is here, we know Paul's writing. Why is he writing? To whom is he writing to? What was he writing about? Like, you, you, we need to formulate some kind of occasion, and you largely have to use clues from the text to try to build the, um, the occasion or the narrative of what's, what's taking place. What we see in the book of Colossians is that Paul is going to continually urge the church towards Christian maturity. Continually beat that home. Look at Colossians 2.4. Again, he's addressing a people who have become distracted by false teaching. He says, 2.4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I am teaching you because I don't want you to be deluded by arguments of this world. 2.6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in faith. In other words, I don't want you to be deceived by plausible arguments. I want you to walk in Christ. Be rooted, grounded, fruitful in Jesus. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his own sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. Let no one disqualify you as they go on and on about asceticism, as they continue to talk about their own visions. They're puffed up with their sensuous minds, and they don't have, hold fast to Christ, who is the head of the body. As we kind of build the context of this epistle, what we find is that this church has immature believers in their midst who are uninterested in the sound gospel of Christ, and because of their lack of interest, their ears have gone after visions, false teaching. They're constantly talking about angels and worshiping angels. And Paul says, get back to holding fast to the head, to Jesus. Now, we believe, obviously we believe in angels, right? Like, obviously we believe in the prophetic, we believe in visions. I believe all of that. But what Paul is saying here is that some want to go on and on, droning on and on about their own spiritual experiences. I believe in visions, but if your visions do not encourage me to love Jesus with a hotter love, then I am uninterested in your visions. Right? Like, like there, there are, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Paul teaches plainly in 1 Corinthians 13 through 15 that, that the Spirit imparts certain spiritual gifts to the church, but he says that those gifts are intended to edify the body, 
not to be used so that you can say to all your friends in your small group, look at me, look how spiritual and gifted I am. Everybody applaud for me as I express my great gifting. No, Paul says the gifts are to edify the body. In other words, those gifts are only appropriate when they are sharpening the saints to love Jesus more. We must become interested in growing up into the head. We must become interested in Christian maturity. Lifelong sanctification. Every year of your life, you should look a little more like Jesus than you did the year before. Now, I'm way too far ahead of myself. So let me read to you from Colossians chapter 1. We'll read today verse 1 through 14. If you give me some time to kind of build the context, and then we'll try to drive home Largely, today we're just going to deal with the theme, the the big picture of the text. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom... We have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Let's talk context for a moment. He opens with, We thank God, since we've heard of your faith, from Epaphras, who shared the gospel with you. Epaphras is a faithful servant who brought the gospel to you, and he's told us of your faith. Most scholars believe that Epaphras heard the gospel, became a Christian at Ephesus. Ephesus is about 100 miles east of Colossae. um, And and some suggest that it's likely that he had a relationship with Paul there. So what we find is that Paul did not plant this church at Colossae, but rather a man who Paul brought to the faith and his discipling brought the gospel to the church at Colossae. Paul says first, this gospel came to you as it is spreading everywhere, bearing fruit everywhere. And it's actually interesting in the original language, Paul almost speaks of the gospel as a person. He personifies the gospel message. It's almost like he's saying, the person of the gospel came to you. And it came in power and it came and fervency, and it bore fruit among you. Just like it's coming everywhere, it's spreading everywhere. The wildfire of the gospel is covering the known world, Paul says. I think originally Paul is slapping at a few things. One, 
When a church or a people begin to think that they are the center of the gospel universe, they are more likely to go after false doctrine and false teaching. When a church begins to come to the posture when they say, we have the secret. The only way to come to that posture is to forget that the gospel is spreading like wildfire everywhere. That we belong to a movement that's much bigger than ourselves. The church at Colossae has become so, so self-centered, thinking about self, that they've forgotten that the gospel spreads to the end of the earth. Now, in our day, I've, I said this to the church earlier, um, we, we are experiencing a move, particularly in the younger generations, of what's being called deconstruction. Now, largely, it's, it's anyway, it's got some issues. Um, we'll deal with that another day. Uh, but in conversation, as I'm having conversations with people who are deconstructing, oftentimes they'll say things like, the church is selfish and self-absorbed. And I'll respond, the church in China? The church in the Middle East? The church in Latin America? What do you mean when you say that the church is selfish and self-absorbed? And what you'll find when you ride that thought home is typically what they mean is that I grew up amongst the people in a church and I'm offended by the church that I grew up with. Now that's a very, very small view of the church. Or some will say the church is racist. And I'm like, the church in Africa? Like, What, what do you mean that you're using capital C church but you're talking about low, little c, small, local thing that you experience? Now, we need to remember that we belong to a large movement of Orthodox believers. And Paul says, part of belonging to a large movement of Orthodoxy is holding fast to Orthodoxy. Right? What unites the gospel movement that's spreading around the world are the plain truths of the gospel. Mainly the pure life of Christ Jesus, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. Right? Like what unites us plainly is Christ. So as Paul is approaching a church who is going after false teaching, he says, remember the gospel that's going everywhere that bore fruit among you? In another way, he is saying this. Remember that this gospel was good to you. That you were liberated from your own sin. Delivered from your own demonic oppression. Delivered from selfishness and bitterness and being self-absorbed. Remember that this gospel came to you with power and brought you liberty and freedom. Be faithful to the message that brought you healing. Don't despise it now. Again, Epiphas shared the gospel at Colossae. And so what seems to have happened is that as Paul, I'm, let me just piece together the, the story. You have to build the narrative as you study multiple books at one time. But what seems to be the consensus on what's taking place here is Paul is most likely in prison at Rome. Paul is in kind of a, a um, what we would call like more of like a house arrest scenario where he's in a home, friends are coming and going. And this is actually where um, Paul is being ministered to by Onesimus, who was the runaway slave, who the book of Philemon is about, right? Do you guys remember this? Paul writes to Philemon and says, I have your your runaway slave. His name's Onesimus. He's come to know Christ. And so now I'm asking you, Philemon, to let this man go, to let him serve me, continue to serve me in prison in Rome. And so what seems to have happened, and we learn at the end of Colossians you don't have to turn there. Um, but this letter came to Colossae in the hands of Onesimus on his way to bring the letter to Philemon. 
And so Epaphras has shared with Paul, these people came to faith. There is a legitimate church here. There is a legitimate gospel movement. But Epaphras has shared with Paul, but they are falling stray to spiritual immaturity. They are going after visions. They're going after asceticism. They're, 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 they're teaching dietary restrictions. And in response, Paul in prison writes a letter. By the way, he needs to send a letter to Philemon too. And so he writes the letter to the church at Colossae. He writes the letter to Philemon. He puts it in the hands of Onesimus and says, go take this letter to the church at Colossae and take this letter to Philemon. Then he says at the end of the book of Colossians, we know that Laodicea, the church we learn about in Revelation 1-4, through Laodicea was 10 miles east of Colossae. And so then he says at the end of the book, make sure you read this letter to the church at Laodicea as well. So that's the scenario. Epaphras is concerned with the maturity of a church that he planted. And so he reaches out to his mentor, his apostle, to send a letter to this church and to bring instruction and correction. So look at me with me at Colossians 1.28. Again, I'm just kind of picking around the epistle, trying to more firmly build up the, the circumstance here. Paul says in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, being Christ, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Him we we proclaim, we warn everyone, we teach everyone with spiritual wisdom so that we may present every person mature in Christ. Paul is writing to a spiritually immature church, a young church. And he says, all of my ministry, my strength, my energy that Christ supplies, I struggle to present you mature in Jesus. Again, we learn in chapter 2 that they were demanding asceticism. Historically, asceticism can look like a few different things. It can look like dietary restrictions, never eating meat, or it can look like... um, Sometimes asceticism that we see monks in history like sleeping outside in the cold to try to punish their flesh or, 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 um, or mandated celibacy, like no one's allowed to participate um, in, in, in sexual acts even in the proper context of marriage. And the idea of asceticism is that by denying your flesh these basic needs and pleasures that you are somehow um, going to reach a new level of spirituality. Historically, commentators suggest that what the church at Colossae is dealing with is the the beginning waves of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism really catches traction in about the 90s, but this text is clearly written, uh, most believe that Paul died around 80, 64, or 65. And so some say this book's written around 60. And so the text is definitely before Gnosticism has its full day, but it does seem that the ideas are starting to float around. The word Gnosticism or Gnostic, it means knowledge or secret knowledge is the idea that Gnosticism has found a secret spiritual knowledge. Primarily what Gnosticism taught is that everything that is matter is evil and everything that is spirit is good. And so Gnosticism would say things like, um, you know, my flesh is evil and so to to participate in sexual intercourse with my wife is is evil and if i deny my flesh that intercourse then my spirit can somehow excel to a new level of secret knowledge 
or if I, if I fast like long hours forever, if I deny myself meat, then somehow I'm going to achieve new spiritual heights. And, and that is plainly anti-Christian. We don't, we don't achieve new heights by denying our flesh. We achieve new heights by casting all of ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Paul says, stop. Like, why are you pretending like not eating certain foods is somehow promoting spirituality? Cling fast to the head. I I was listening to a lecture recently um, where the lecturer was saying that uh, we don't have Gnosticism in our society. That's not quite what we have. But we do have this kind of emphasis on personal secret knowledge. Right, like a lot of what we talk about in, in culture is finding the true you, or discover like self-discovery, like discovering your wants. And even when we start talking about sexuality, right, it's like like discover your own sexual desires and wants, and and your sexual desires now are the are the dictator of your identity, right? Like your sexual desires dictate identity, and it's all about like this: who am I? Self-discovery, fulfill. You like follow your heart, pursue your dreams, and 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 what what we want to say here is that Christianity is not about self-discovery. Christianity is about discovering Christ. Christianity is not about sitting around and talking about, oh my, like, who am I? What are, what are my wants following my desires? Christianity is about sitting around and going like, who is Christ? What are his desires for us? How do we honor him as the head of the church? And in that way, Gnosticism, or, or this kind of modern Gnosticism that we're experiencing, really makes self the authority. Right? Like, if the idea is your sexual preferences and desires become your, the, the, the main dictator of your identity, and then that really dictates your politics and your ideologies, like, what's the authority in your life? Your own desires. And, and that's, you, you can't really build a life based on your own desires. I'm, you follow that rabbit trail down and you'll run into some real logical, like, like, some people desire to murder me. That doesn't make murder appropriate. I have the right to say that murder is not appropriate because I have an authority which establishes that murder is not appropriate. When your authority is only self-desire and self-want, you're standing on shifting sand. What are your wants opposed to this person's wants? You have no authority or no basis to build anything. Now, why am I talking about this? I don't know. I'm, I don't know why I went down that rabbit trail. I'm trying to say that, that for the church, Christ is our authority. And we're doing everything in our day to deny authority. We hate authority. But I want to tell you that if you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, if you've been forgiven of your sins and born again because of his work, you have a head. You have, a, you have an authority. He has wants and desires. He establishes his authority through revelation. This is what we believe is spirit, spirit-filled, spirit-inspired revelation from God. We know his heart. We know his wants and his wills. And his wants, wills, and desires trump everything that exists within your sinful being. 
and my entire life is dying to my flesh so that I might say with Paul, I have been crucified with Jesus. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ, his desires, his wants, his very life lives in me. That's Christianity. Everything else that we're seeing culturally is wicked. And as those ideas begin to settle in the church and kind of flourish in the church, Paul would call that foolish and immature and childish. He says, with all of my energy, I toil, I struggle, I labor to present you mature in Christ. Why don't we talk in the West about Christian maturity? Where is that gone? Where is the concept of growing up in Christ in our Western preaching and teaching? All of our emphasis is on fulfilling your dreams, finding your, your path and having a happy and healthy life. And we need to start talking about what is Christian health in Christ? So this epistle, we find Paul saying to an immature church, let's talk about what it means to be mature. So for the next several weeks, we focus on Christian maturity. What is Christian maturity? What does it demand of us? What does it look like in our midst? What does it feel like? And Paul says to Colossae, your aim is Christian maturity, not secret knowledge, not excelling in your own spirituality and dreams and visions, not bolstering up your pride or your ego. Your aim must be to look like Christ, to obey Christ, to please Christ, to, to be satisfied by Christ, to have the desires of your soul nourished in Jesus. All of who you are, church, must be in the head, who is Christ. Everything else to Paul, childish. Hallelujah. So Paul says in the introduction, I have heard that the gospel has come to you and that you have responded, that there's fruit in your midst. And as I've heard about the gospel coming to you, I pray for you continually. So the first thing Paul says is, I continually pray for you. He's always excited to hear about the birth of a church. Paul is a passionate evangelist, apostle, and so he loves new churches being planted. But he, he not only thanks God that the gospel is bearing fruit, but he also begins to pray for that congregation. Because Paul knows that when a church is birthed, it's only a matter of time before the church is attacked. And so if you study Paul's life closely, you'll come to see that it seems from, from the narrative of Acts and his epistles that oftentimes when Paul planted a church, it was just a matter of time before some false teacher came behind him and tried to sway the church away from the true gospel. We see that, we see that in Galatia. That some believe, and it seems to me, that there were false teachers even intentionally following Paul. Right? When Paul leaves Ephesus, we'll sweep into Ephesus. When Paul leaves Galatia, we'll sweep into Galatia. And they were intentionally preying on young and, and, and fresh churches. And so, with that understanding, Paul does not just thank God for the church, although he's very thankful, he prays for the church. He prays for their maturity. Paul doesn't just plant, celebrate, and move on. He recognizes that every church will face battles. So he plants, prays, then writes. Like, what is he doing here? He's instructing. 
right? He's continuing to disciple. Why would Paul continue to disciple churches after he's gone? Maybe because he cares about Christian maturity, right? It's not just get saved, get the t-shirt and sit down and shut up. It's grow up in Christ that you may be presented to the bridegroom as a spotless bride. It's, it's continue to look more like Jesus each year of your life. Now, when you just jog your brain, everyone, I want you, everyone in the room, just do this. Just slap your brain one time. When you just jog your brain, you think of the church at Galatia, right? Paul is dealing with a church who's been attacked by false teachers, religious men. When you think of the church at Corinth, one of the first things he addresses is that there's the flesh is starting to thrive in Corinth. There's, there's even a man who's having sexual intercourse with his father's wife. And so in Corinth, we see the flesh has been eating to take root. In Corinth, we see um, ego, obviously. They're using the gifts of the Spirit to kind of bolster one another up. And when you start to examine Paul's life and writing and ministry, he's largely addressing churches who are having spiritual warfare, who are being attacked by false teachers, who are dealing with cultural influences, who have the flesh flourishing. And Paul's continually writing to these churches to spur them on to Christ-likeness. And so when he opens the epistle, he doesn't just say, I'm so glad that you prayed the prayer and received Jesus as your Lord, the end. I don't know why we act like that's what he says in the West. That's not what he says. I'm so glad to hear that you've given your life to Christ. There are battles, there's warfare coming your way. And so I pray for you every single day. What does Paul pray for the church at Colossae? Verse 9, that the church would know God's will, not self-discovery, that you would know the will and the plans of God, that you would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why would they need spiritual wisdom and understanding? Because again, there are going to be fights. They need to know how to navigate the times. They need to have discernment. There, this language should make you think of Moses or, 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 or David or Solomon. These Old Testament men who are filled with wisdom. Wisdom that calls them to act righteously and to honor God in the midst of confusion. Paul says confusion. That's the way of the world. That's the way of the demonic. I'm praying that you have spiritual understanding and wisdom so that you can act appropriately. Notice what he says in verse 10. He prays for a knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they would, verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I am praying that you would have wisdom and spiritual insight so that your life would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that you would please Jesus. So that you would live in the spirit and not live in the age, spirit of the age. So that you would be fully devoted to your Lord. He continues, that you may be strengthened with the very power of God that would cause you to persevere. I'll ask you again, why would they need to persevere? If church is just about praying the prayer and sitting down and being happy with your t-shirt, why would you ever need to persevere? Maybe because Paul thought that there were battles ahead. Maybe because Paul thought there were challenges ahead. Maybe because Paul actually had some kind of ecclesiology that acknowledged that the church has a mission. 
right? Like the church is not called just to sit inside the walls on their butts, but they're actually called to bring the kingdom to culture. Maybe Paul knew that there were going to be debates. Maybe Paul knew that there were going to be arguments. Maybe Paul knew that the church would be imprisoned for their beliefs and for their doctrine. Maybe Paul thought that the church actually needed a sinking backbone. I pray that you have the power of God in your midst that you would persevere with what? Endurance. That you would have endurance, patience, and joy through trials, hardships, attacks, warfare. Persevere how? How should they persevere? With patience and joy, with a smile on their face. And here, I I just want to say this, and I'll stop yelling at you. (laughs) Until next week. Um, We have become so, so consumed with, with quickness, with, with, with emotion, and emotion is a gift of God, okay? And so, like, when, when, you, when you shed tears in worship, that's a beautiful thing. I'm not... Uh, Jonathan Edwards didn't like the word emotionalism. He said sometimes people see a move of God and they say, that's emotional. He said it's not emotional. It's affection of the heart rising up to the surface. And so it's not, it's not that emotions are wrong. But the problem is, in our day, we think if we don't have chill bumps, then God's not in our midst. And we think if we don't have chill bumps, we better go to another church that will give us chill bumps because what we're really after is an emotional experience. It's not the same as being after an affectionate heart that burns with fire for Christ. There is a delineation there. Because we become so consumed with quick fixes, we want to be delivered today. We want our life to be put together today. We want Christ to fix our lives yesterday. We've quit emphasizing longevity and maturity and slow and steady Christian living. A pastor that I kind of read and listen to on the regular keeps talking about the, the concept of plodding along. He calls it plodding along. Like, like daily getting up and reading your Bible, spending time in the presence of the Lord, doing your best today to serve God with excellence and, 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 and not necessarily being in a rush, not trying to just, just pump everything out like like use me today with all of my passion and energy but this kind of systematic healthy growth we've abandoned it we again i'm i'm, I'm talking about the western church we've become so enamored with church growth we we only think about church growth and with church growth comes an emphasis sometimes on personality worship, right? We talk about who our favorite preachers are rather than talking about what our favorite book of the Bible is. That'd be a totally different conversation. Um, we, we talk about what worship teams we love the most. And, and, and we really, what we really want, if we're being honest, sometimes what we really want is to be entertained. And, and, and church was never about entertainment. It was about living in a community of saints and growing together into Christ-likeness, honoring and serving Jesus for the entirety of your life. Not just for the season where you feel chill bumps. I want you to serve Jesus passionately while you're dealing with sickness, while your spouse is suffering from disease. I want you to serve Jesus passionately when it feels like your business is falling apart. I want you to serve Jesus wholeheartedly even when you don't have this great emotional experience, right? We want to love Jesus with longevity. The problem with only caring about the now 
and wanting numerical growth and energy and momentum and the ability to say to our cities, look at how great of a church we are. The problem with wanting all of that now and not being concerned with lifelong, steady, systematic Christian maturity is that we're actually sacrificing the future generations. So in other words, the best thing for our children and grandchildren is not that we have the biggest influence in our community necessarily. The best thing for our children and grandchildren is that we are mature saints of God. The problem in in our society largely is that oftentimes the biggest, most influential churches are the shallowest churches. And we are breeding a shallowness about our Christian faith. And, and, and that, that, that's okay for a season until storms come, until false teachers come and try to sway the church and nobody's ever read the book of Romans, right? Like we, we need to be concerned with spiritual maturity in Christ. Finally, Paul turns to the beauty of the gospel that we're called to. I want you to notice his language here. He qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He does not say, you qualified yourself to share in the inheritance of the saints with your giftings, with your charisma, with your great wisdom, with your intellect, with your beauty. You're incredible. He says, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He does not say, your great prophets in your church delivered you from the domain of darkness. He does not say, the YouTube teacher who's emphasizing his visions delivers you from the domain of darkness. He does not say, your parents delivered you, or your own study and discipline and fasting delivered you from darkness. No, he says, Christ delivered you. Then he says, he transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. He does not say, you worked so hard. You proved to your friends and neighbors how spiritual you are with your great fasting. No, he says, God transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. And here's the whole line of thought here. Paul is saying, you've become concerned, you've become self-absorbed and self-focused, and you've forgotten that it was Christ who delivered you. You've forgotten that Christ transferred you into the kingdom. You've forgotten that Christ broke from your back the yoke of slavery. You've forgotten that your joy was from the ministry and life and death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Aren't you? Why, why aren't you living thankful and consumed with love for Jesus? Why are you allowing someone to, to drag your attention away to some false teacher? In our day, again, I would say, why are you watching that man on YouTube all day long with the latest prophecy, who I don't think has read the book of Romans? Why are you focusing on these peripheral things and not so thankful that Jesus delivered you from your own sin and selfishness? Don't you love him? Don't you adore him? Don't you want more of Christ? Don't you want to know his will? And don't you want to please him? And don't you want all of your heart to just just be filled with a holy fragrance to, to Christ for what he's done for you? Don't you love him? Paul is saying, remember your love for him, church. Remember that he is the savior of the church. Remember that, that he is the deliverer. Let every other knee bow. 
Let every teacher hit their face in humility. Let us fall with the angels and declare holy, holy, holy before the Lamb of God who was slain. Let him alone be worshipped. Let him alone be glorified. Let him alone be exalted in the house of God. Why are you chasing false teachers? Have you forgotten? That's the the line of thought that Paul is approaching there. We'll turn next week. I'll get ahead of myself because I like to. We'll turn next week to he is the image of the invisible God. The, the, this, this great doxology, this Christology of how beautiful and wonderful Christ is. Paul's going to turn for, for, for a solid section of the chapter and just say, think about how beautiful Jesus is. So if you'll take a step back with me, just, just unwind everything we just talked about, and then, and then to realize that the emphasis of this book is on Christian maturity. And then Paul says to the church, what I'm asking of you is to remember Christ your deliverer, to remember Christ your head. Then we can draw the logical conclusion that the beginning of Christian maturity is, is if you will, an obsession on the person of Jesus. The beginning of Christian maturity is, to use the language of Revelation, is to not forsake your first love. The teaching I listen to, the books that I read, I want the books I read, this is where I read old books, I want the books that I read to fuel the flame in my heart to love Jesus. Okay? I want the books that I, the teachers that I listen to as I lay my head on the pillow at night to fuel my love for Jesus. And if that teacher is just yickety yakking, I'm really not that interested. I will throw the book down or in the trash. Or at Seth. Any of those things. And, and I'll close with this. You've probably heard this thought before. Um, it's pretty common. Have you ever heard that um, bankers, they don't study counterfeit money. Have you ever heard this before? They don't study counterfeit money. They just deal with real money all day long. Just deal with real money. And then when a fake bill comes along, they, they notice it right away. Oh, that, that ain't right. And throw it to the side. Their, their, their focus is not on counterfeit money. Their focus is on real money. So when the counterfeit comes, they just kind of throw it to the side. In the same way, I'm not really interested in my kids' monopoly money. I'm very interested in what my wife has in her wallet and where she keeps spending it. <laughs> right? And, 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 and with, that, with that in mind, to tie this all together, Chesterton, there's no uninteresting subject, only uninterested people. Are you so interested in Christ that when others bring teaching about you know, the latest dream or the, the latest Jewish roots movement and you need to wear this to pray and or you're going to hell. Um, are, 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 you, are you so interested in Christ that all of that is just peripheral noise? Because the mature church lives there. They say, turn off that peripheral noise. I don't have anything to do with that. If what you're teaching and declaring doesn't pure gasoline on the fire of my heart to love Jesus more, I think that you're an awful teacher. I don't care how articulate you are. I don't care how spiritual. I don't care how sharp you dressed or how many times you're on TV. If you don't make my heart ache for Christ, I think you stink. (laughs) Seth, if you'll come for me, we'll get ready to close here. Go ahead and stand to your feet. Paul says the beginning of Christian maturity is to revive your focus, your interest on Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. Altar team, if you guys get in place. The first thing we'll say this morning is, do you know Christ at all? Have you ever really known Jesus? We talked today about maturing in Jesus. Do you know him? Have you ever really bowed your knee before him and given him your life? 
Have you ever made him the authority of your life? Scripture teaches that any person who confesses Christ as Lord is totally forgiven of their sins on the basis of the cross of Calvary. And so with that in mind, your past sins, your past mistakes don't keep you out of a relationship with Christ because Christ dealt with your past mistakes on the cross. So if you come to Jesus today and say, I want to live for you, to know you, to search out your, your treasures and your wisdom, and your knowledge, and want my life to be for you, scripturally speaking, all of your sins will be forgiven today and you will belong to the kingdom of God. You can't work your way in. You can't perform your way in. You can't earn your way in. The only way to have relationship with Christ is to confess your sins and confess him as Lord. And if you do that, the scripture says that you will be born again, that you'll have a new existence. The old would pass away and the new would come. You can leave here today born again in love with Jesus. You can find today the treasure of all creation, Christ himself. You can stop your boring life and find what it is to be thrilled in knowing Jesus. If that's you, the altar is going to be open to you today. Second, there were a few words that came forth. One was that, that we need to just, the word was, is that breakthrough. Some of us are praying, in particular praying for our kids who have gone astray. And the word was that if you'll just keep steadily praying, don't quit. Just steadily keep bringing your petitions to the Lord. The word was that, that there's going to be breakthrough, a sudden breakthrough, as we kind of just plod along in our prayers and our requests to the Lord. So some of you have gotten tired in, in your prayer, and you've gotten tired because the answer hasn't come, and so you quit. And the word that came this morning was, get back on your feet, keep steadily bringing your requests to the Lord. The last thing was there were a few words that some are dealing with health issues today. Maybe you're having issues with your skin, rashes, or issues with your eyes, dryness of eyes. If either of those things are you, we believe the Holy Spirit uh, is pointing that out today and, and, and may want to heal you. If you have any other sickness, if you've got a bad diagnosis, we would love to pray for you. We believe God still heals. And so the altars are open. If any of those things are you, if you need to meet Jesus today, I want you to come. If you, if you need to, to begin to pray again today, I want you to come. If you need healing, I want you to come. And lastly, if you need to just say to God, I want to get serious about my Christian maturity. I want to get on the altar, put my face in the carpet, and ask the Holy Spirit to revive my own personal walk with Christ. I want to seriously love you with the entirety of my life. If that touched you at all today, I want you to come to the altars, and we want to ask God to move. So the altars are open. Come. I don't want you to hesitate. I don't want you to look around. If you need ministry, come now.